Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you this morning and be able to share God's Word. I want to turn your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. And this morning we are only going through four verses. Verse 1 to 4. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Lord, indeed, speak to us this morning. Um, your Word convict us. Uh, use me, Lord, I ask you. Uh, please search our hearts. Help us to focus on you at this time. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Oh, these past few days I've been following some of the Olympics. I really in, enjoy that. And I don't know how many of you have been following. And it's, it's, for me, it's an exciting time. Uh, you know, top athletes competing, and you know when when one of our athletes, you know, wins, we all rejoicing. You know, and we uh, when Skuman got the the gold in in the 200 meters breaststroke, we were all really excited and like yes, uh, in a way like she represents us. You know, South Africa. I was. Happy yesterday, Brazil won gold on the soccer, and it's like yes. Um, and and the point uh, is that in a way they re- they're representing a country, right? After they get medals, there is a the they put on the the flag, and there's always we always represent in a way more than just us, right? Previously, uh, in in many years ago, maybe the there is mo- there was more of a sense of what I do matters and impacts around me as well. You know, there was that sense that if I do something really bad, it brings shame to my family's name. Now we have we live in an individualistic culture that seems to it all. Only what matters is, is, is me. But here's the thing. We represent more than just ourselves. And so, are we living according to that name which we, in a way, have been given? And that's where I want to draw our attention this morning. So, giving a little bit of context to where we find ourselves in. The first two words of our uh, text is if-then. 
Now, I don't remember the name of the guy who put chapters and verses in the scriptures, but this is really a bad place to put uh, a beginning of a chapter because it's saying, if then means there is something else before it. And so if you turn your page to chapter 2, and I want to quickly read just to give a little bit of background from verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiving us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If Christ... If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, what, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Long section. But here's, here's the point. There is a group of false teachers coming into Colossae, and they are teaching, coming from philosophy, and they are teaching that in order for these believers to uh, uh, increase or... or um, grows spiritually, they need all these regulations. They, they need to be uh, not touching this, not handling that. They are uh, caught up with visions and worship of angels and asceticism and all of these regulations, and they are insisting on the believers, this is what you must do in order to, uh, let's say, spiritually grow, to ascend to the next level. And these, these teachings are not just coming from philosophy, but eventually from demons themselves. Because Paul uses the, the words in verse 8 and verse 20, 
the elemental spirits of the world. So this, this teaching is, is creeping in. And what does Paul do? He reminds them of the bigger picture. He reminds them of the gospel. Look at in verse, in verse 12, he goes on to say, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you are dead in your trespasses, but he made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So Paul points out there is an amazing thing that has happened to you. Remember the gospel. All your, your sins, your list of sins that demand punishment and judgment were nailed to the cross. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but Christ made you alive in Him, together with Him. And so God forgave us. This is how He forgives. How can a holy God forgive us dirty sinners? In verse 14, By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. God took our punishment. Jesus took our punishment. He took the wrath of God, the judgment that we deserved, and so God could forgive us. Our sins were nailed on the cross. And so Paul, Paul's argument here is, look at what he has done. Look at what Christ has done. These other things that you're focusing on, they are, verse 17, but a shadow of things to come. But the substance itself, what really matters is Christ. What really matters is Christ. And so, coming back to our text, that I want, to, want you to remember triple A. Assume, act, and await. Right. Assume, act, and await. So going back to our text, just the very first line there. First thing I want you to remember today, assume your identity. Verse, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. Only so far. If then you have been raised with Christ. What Paul is doing here, just in this little phrase, is that he's reminding us, reminding them of their identity with Christ. In other words, if you have been raised with Christ, then, in other words, since you belong to Christ, then, and this is an, uh, uh, an assumption that is based on our union with Christ. In Romans 6, and we go through this with those that uh, get baptized, verse uh, 3 to 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness 
of life. So we are, we are united with Christ in His death and resurrection. But see, this little assumption, we mustn't go quickly over it. We must remember that our identity is found in Christ, and He assumes that and presupposes that. And this is very important for us. Because when it comes to today's day and age, sometimes what Christians do is that they will leave that little assumption behind and come to tackle issues and face the world from a neutral point. We'll, we'll say, well, oh, that's, that's just church stuff. Let me give you an example. Now, um, I, I listen to the briefing, and I know it's mainly focused in America, but I still find uh, Dr. Moeller's analysis very helpful and insightful. And he was talking this week about the Speaker of the House in America, Nancy Pelosi, who, who, who she claims to be a devout Catholic. And yet she is proposing the... Um, abolition of what is called the Hyde Amendment, which prevents taxpaying money to pay for abortions. And she is an advocate for abortions and for the abolition of this Hyde Amendment. And so, in a, in a sense here, she has abandoned her Catholic identity completely. She's going completely against the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and it's just going with what is now uh, seen as, as uh, good in the eyes of the culture. And so she, she is abandoning her Catholic identity, per se, and just going with, with this. Now, some, an, another example is sometimes I, I hear parents, and even sometimes Christian parents, uh, tell me, I don't want to force my beliefs on my children. I want, to make, I want them to make their own decisions. Now, I, I get where they're coming from. But there is a, a flaw in that reasoning. And that is, it assumes neutrality. It assumes neutrality. In other words, if you are not discipling your children... The school will be discipling your children, or the government will be discipling their, your children. There is no neutrality. Someone is teaching your children. Someone is imposing their beliefs on your children. There is no neutral ground. And so, what I, my point I'm making is that we ought to start from that assumption of identity in Christ. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. There is no neutral ground in the, in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. We ought to, no matter what kinds of issues we are going to tackle, we ought to assume our identity in Christ. It's not like, well, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, but then when it comes to politics, then uh, it uh, it, it doesn't, it's, it's fine. 
No, our identity in Christ will influence every single aspect of our lives. In every single issue that we face, we ought to return to our identity in Christ. What, what has Christ said about it? Assume that identity. And so he starts with that, assume your identity, but then secondly, he, in our second point is act accordingly. Act accordingly. Now there's a story of Alexander the Great who, who you know, conquered uh, almost the entire known world uh, at that time with his vast army. And one night he couldn't sleep. He went about... And, and then he found a guard that was on duty asleep. Now, at that time, uh, he could have um, died immediately. Uh, you know, the penalty for sleeping on duty was, was sometimes uh, death. And so when, when Alexander the Great approached the soldier, um, he asked him, do you know what the penalty is for falling asleep on guard duty? And the soldier said, yes, sir. And then he asked, what's your name? The Alexander the Great asked. And the soldier said, Alexander, sir. What's your name? He repeated, my name is Alexander, sir. One last time... It's like, what is your name? And the third time, the soldier meekly said, My name is Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great looked to the young soldier straight in the eye and said, Soldier, he said with intensity, either change your name or change your conduct. Either change your, don't bring, don't bring shame to my name. Either change your name or change your conduct. Just as, as we have been given this identity and name, we ought to honor it with our conduct. And there are two things that uh, Paul is admonishing us with. First, is that we must seek the things that are above. So because my identity is in Christ, I have a celestial home. We see that seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. One commentator makes the observation regarding this word of seek. It is not to seek as if perhaps we might not find it. It is not even to seek in the sense of searching for, but it is to seek in the sense of aiming at. And now do you not think that if we had burning in our hearts and conscious to our experiences the sense of union with Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, that will shape the direction and dictate the aims of our earthly life? In other words, if we were truly thinking and setting our minds on Christ and what is eternal, do you not think that our conduct on earth will be different? Let me suggest the phrase, live with the lens of eternity. Now you may be thinking, okay, what are these things? Seek this, the things that are, what are these things? And I, I, I believe 
what, what Paul is doing is in the rest of this chapter, he, he's setting in more detail what that conduct uh, of, of the identity in Christ should look like. So from verse 12, he, he will say what are some of these things. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. So I will, I will sum it up in terms of, of these things that, are, uh, that we ought to be seeking. The, the very character of Jesus Christ himself. That is what we ought to be thinking. The things that we are to be seeking, aiming at. But, and in the second verse, he changes. So... First verse, he uses the word seek. And then the second verse, set your mind on things that are above. It's just a, a kind of a repetition. But not only there is an, an admonition to actively seek or set your mind on things that are above, but there is also an active not setting our minds on things of the earth. There is a positively... Uh, admonition to seek the things that are above, and there is, and and he is commanding us to, but and do not set your things that are of the earth. And what are things of are of the earth? Again, in our own on this own chapter from verse five, he's going to describe them. Uh, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you: sexual immorality, impurity passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put the old self with its practice. So, these are familiar things to us because our our uh, fleshly nature, we often go in this direction. But here's the thing. When we set our minds on things of the earth, we do not see what God is doing. And I want to give an, a biblical example of this. Listen to this. Matthew 7, 16, 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, this is pretty amazing, right, what what Jesus is saying here. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Now listen to this. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now this must have been terrible. Imagine Jesus calls you Satan. 
<laughs> Peter is right there, and Jesus is telling him the most amazing thing that ought to happen to all of humanity. He's telling he's going to suffer, and he's going to die, and he's going to be raised again on the third day. And what does Peter think? All about himself. He can't even see what amazing story Jesus is telling him right then and there. He can't see what God is doing. Because he's setting, because his mind was, was all worried just about himself. It was not, his mind was not set on things of God, but on things of men. We, when we are thinking of, of things of, of men, we don't see the big picture of, of what God is, is doing. Matthew Henry puts it well, and he says, As heaven and earth are contrary one to the other, both cannot be followed together. An affection to the one will weaken and abate affection to the other. And we know this. We know this, that, that when we are close to God, it's less likely that you're going to fall into sin. As John Owen said, either prayer will abide or sin will abide, but the two of them will not abide. And we, and we know this. I know this even in my own life. When I'm not close to God and praying, it's, it's more easy for me to fall into sin. It's more evident to my wife. You can ask her. When I'm snappy or moody, and she asks me, have you spent time with God? <laughs> she knows, she knows, like, have you spent time with God? This is, there's something wrong here. So we ought to be acting accordingly, seeking the things that are above. That's, that's part of our identity. We ought to act accordingly. Thirdly, is our third A is a wait for Christ's return. And this final point is really a point of encouragement. We see that through, throughout this passage uh, that Christ has been raised and ascended. But before we go into the encouragement, once again in verse 3, he reminds believers again of their identity. It starts with, For you have died. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. That old self is dead. Your life of sin, the old man is dead. You have died. That's not your identity anymore. Don't, don't, don't seek the things that are on earth because you have died to that. You're no longer that person. You have died for that. You have died to sin. We go through this even in the baptismal class, the, the baptism symbolizing the dead to sin, the newness in Christ, as, as we raise with Him. So, He starts, for you have died. And then He goes on to say these words, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, what do we mean by that? Now, you've heard Pastor Charles often speak of the already and the not yet, right? We are, we are saved now, but not fully yet. When Christ returns, we will then be fully saved, if you, if you get what I'm saying. You, they're already and they're not yet. The kingdom of God is here, but it's also coming. But in addition to that, what, what does this, this union mean? Our life is hidden with Christ, and when Christ, who is your life, appears. Now, the Bible speaks, the New Testament speaks about our union with Christ, and, and we see both um, we are in Him, we are in Christ, and you will also find in, in, a, in uh, a lot of times a Christ in us, the hope of glory, right? So let me just share a couple of verses from Colossians 1.27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. John 11, 25, 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, I must be honest, in preparing this sermon, I was really trying to wrestle, to, to try to wrap my mind about this and this concept. Not, not regarding the already and not yet. I understand that. But this union with, with Christ and, and, and our life being in Him. So this was, this was my, my takeaway besides what I've already mentioned. Is that true life is found in Christ. For those of us believers, He has given us eternal life. But here's where the ball went up as, as, I, as I was doing this, as, as I was preparing. When growing up on Sunday school, eternal life in my mind had always been about not dying. And yes, in a sense, there is. But really, what this life that the Bible seems to be communicating is that our true life is dependent on our union with Christ. It's not that I'm going to be living forever in heaven and, and, there, is, and there is streets. It's not, it's not just about that. It's, that. it's that my life is dependent on my union with Christ. It is, it is more than just not dying. It's that true life is dependent in, in our union with Christ. And this is both the, the now here on the earth and fully displayed and manifested when we get to heaven. 
we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and in Christ made us alive together with Him, together with Him. There is no life, there is no true life apart from Christ. There is no our life, true life, apart from this union with Christ. And as I, as I was driving here from the hill to here, I, I phoned Melissa and I said, I, I, need a, I need an illustration because the bulb went up in my head, but I don't know if I'm going to be good enough communicating this. And, and she helped me with it. So uh, here's, here's kind of the point. You have a, uh, we have a, a beautiful lamp stand at, at home that we got for, uh, for our marriage. And it's, it's very nice, the crafted wood and, and all of this, and it's a tall one. And I can put that, that lamp stand wherever. But unless it's plugged into the electricity, that lamp step is absolutely useless. No matter in what place you put it, or the most prominent place you display it, it's useless unless it's plugged into the source of electricity. And, and my point is, is, is this. No matter, even in heaven, there wouldn't, we would have no true life unless connected in Christ. Unless we are in Christ, we have no life. We are dead. There is no life outside of Christ. And this is truly amazing because it, what Paul is saying is, yeah, it's going to be fully, you are having a taste now of this life, of this abundant life in Christ. But when He returns, when Christ returns, then truly your life will appear. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. This life, this true life, will be experienced and manifest fully when Christ returns. And another word for this is, is glorification. As the aim that we are awaiting. One commentator puts it, At last the spiritual life of the soul will have its due organic expression in a body perfect and heavenly as itself. Now how, how is this going how, to be? How will, how will it happen? And it is as we read in First John, when we see Him, now, theologians call this the beatific vision. And that is when we see Christ, when we see Christ and we will be like Him and our joy will be complete. That longing 
that happiness that we all seek for, our joy will fully be complete. When we see Christ, we'll be transformed. We shall see Him and we shall be like Him. Our joy will be complete. Now, and it, it will not be like we see Him and it's going to be glorious. And then later on, thousands of years later in heaven, it, it will just become usual and boring. Jonathan Edwards says, After they have had the pleasure of beholding the face of God millions of ages, it will not grow a dull story. The relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever. We await Jesus Christ for us to truly experience life. Our life is hidden in Christ. He, he said He will give us abundance of life. And we, we are having a taste now here on earth while we, because we are united with Him. But we await for His return when that will be fully manifested. So, brothers and sisters, I, I pray that God will help us to assume our identity, to act accordingly, to await for His return. Because when the, the encouragement is that when He comes, when Christ, who is our, our life, appears, all the struggles that we face, yeah, death and disease and shame and tears and pain, all of that will be finished. And this should be especially in our minds in this pandemic where we have seen so many deaths, so many funerals, so much pain. We await with the expectation when we of the beatific vision, when we see Christ, and all of this will be over. And we shall see Him and be like Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank You for the life, eternal life, that You have given us. And I thank You because We don't deserve it. We fail you. We don't deserve it, Lord. But you have freely given through sending your Son to die on the cross in our place. So, Lord, we, we thank you because our life is in your hands. We have been made alive. And our, our life is hidden with Christ. Lord, forgive us when we don't act according to our 
new identity. Forgive us when we take on worldly worldviews. When we leave behind our identity to please man. Please forgive us, Lord. And help us to live in a manner that will please you in every way. So we ask you for this. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.